Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, mine website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from our website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 38 in our series for 2023, and today's date is Friday, October the 20th. First, I'll be talking to Live Score Group's General Council member, Rani Wynn, about the increasing opportunity for women in the sport and gaming industry. And I'll be talking to economist Saul Leslake about lifting Australia's productivity. But first, let's talk to Rani Wynn. Rani, why did you choose to establish women in sport and gaming? So I was coming back from maternity leave and I guess I was feeling a little bit vulnerable in terms of it's such a shift in your identity. And I wanted to kind of create a bond or more of a sort of sense of belonging with the other pe- other women across our business. We're a very disparate business. There's lots of offices across sort of Europe and also Africa. And I felt like because it's quite a low percentage of, of women that I work with day to day and got to see on a day to day basis, I wanted to bring us all together. And that's really how that's the origins and how it began. I'd never really heard of employee resource groups prior to establishing Women in Sport and Gaming Group at LiveScore. And yeah, and then since we've been, since we formed, which was last September, so not even quite a year yet, we've had a really big impact across the business. So yeah, that's the origins. That's why we, why we formed. You know, I would, I would imagine it would, people from all walks of life would be part of this. Definitely, exactly. And that's the beauty of it. It's all different levels of seniority across the business. It's all different types of women and yeah, d- different careers, trajectories and just different different stories, which is really great because you've got such thought diversity in each of the rooms um, whenever we get together. But the makeup of iGaming employment has changed in recent years. Hasn't it, hasn't it become uh, more gender balanced or not? I, I think that's been a bit of a common misconception from what I've, and the research I've sort of done in the last few years there has been improvements but across the sports and gaming space which is where we sit um it is around i think an industry average around 70 30 so the split is still significant that women are still in the significant minority and in our company it's actually a little bit worse than that it's more like um 78 22 so we, we've made a lot, we've made leaps and bounds in the last year in, in improving that number. But it is, I think it's still quite a lot of disparity between the genders um, in the industry. 
and there wouldn't be many women on board seats and in executive positions. Would that be right? Yeah, I, I, that's something I probably don't really know in terms of what other companies are necessarily doing at their board level. I think people are recognising um, how important it is to have different voices in the room when you're making decisions. Um, and certainly I would hope that it has improved. But in, at, on our board, there's there's two women. And I do think it's really it is really critical to have different perspectives for you know, business growth, really. Uh, how how will this directive help uh, the Livesaw Group as an employer? Yeah, so we so the Women in Sport and Gaming Group has really worked hard with our people team and the board um, to introduce a number of different kind of initiatives or and, and work closely with HR in, in introducing different initiatives that I think is really makes LiveScore a leading employer in this space. So we've released updated family packages. And if I just focus on the maternity package, it's six months full pay plus plus six months half pay, which is pretty outstanding for um, new mothers. So that's kind of an industry leading package that attracts women to our business. Um, we've also about to launch our fertility policy. We've got pregnancy loss and menopause policies as well. And really, we've also tried to kind of make our job descriptions very agnostic. We're encouraging people from all walks of life to apply so that we can get more women into the top of the funnel um, in terms of applying for roles within the business. And I think just having this collective group of women that get together, that network, that have you know great so social activities as well is also an attract attractive prospect for women joining the business. So I think it has made LiveScore, well, personally, I think it has made LiveScore a more attractive employer and certainly hopefully a leader in the space as well. And, uh, and you're attracting more women because of this? We are, yes, yes, we are. So um, our numbers have shifted quite significantly. It's around nine percentage points in terms of top of the funnel applications that, that have been increasing um, for women in the last year. So I think the PR around what LiveScore is doing and um, and certainly the policies and, and procedures and, and um, changes our, ourselves is also helping. So we're, yeah, we're getting a lot more women applicants, luckily. And we can see comparisons as well on our, on our sites for sort of Glassdoor. I'm not sure if you have that in Australia, but Glassdoor and Indeed are kind of the really big recruitment sites um, in the UK. And, and, and we can see that we're sort of outperforming a, a lot of our competitors as well in terms of women viewing our sites and applying for our jobs. And it would also be a very safe space, wouldn't it be, to discuss matters within the workplace that specifically affect women? Yeah, I think so. I think it is. I think that's definitely something that's the the group has really changed. Not not so much changed, but maybe really has helped to foster a safe a culture of safety across the business. And I think other people from all different um, minority backgrounds have seen that. Okay, well, there's this particular group, um, and they're doing sort of really significant things in the business and it's a very safe space to come up with ideas and suggest things and then that's kind of flowed on into other areas of the business too so there's other employee resource groups now there's a working parents and carers um, resource group we have our pride um, our pride resource group as well called iridian and so yeah i think it is it is it has established a culture of safety definitely for employees and a culture of inclusiveness for all for all groups exactly Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the most important, that's the most important goal of it. Right. And particularly for also for LGBTQI people 
as well. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We've also, um, I won't obviously speak mostly to the Iridian Group's work because that, that's a separate group, but they have done a lot of work with HR as well. We've released a new transgender policy. We do have some um, trans, trans, transgender staff members and it's real safety of culture across the, our whole company. Um, we're very proud of, of, of that. That makes you quite striking as an employer, wouldn't it? I hope so. That's definitely the aim. I think, yeah, we're, we're definitely working to, you know, we recognise that, as I said, thought diversity, different perspectives is critical to good business. We think that we want, every, you know, we believe that everyone should be their true self at work and we want to embrace embrace that. And so, yeah, I hope it does make us striking. Um, and I certainly hope that others in the industry are on their own journeys in this regard as well. Well, in some industries, though, there's some scepticism has grown on gender-focused directives. There are some who have told me it's become quite disruptive in the workplace. I'm sure you've heard that. How has how will LifeScore Group avoid this dynamic? Yeah, I don't know that I'm fully qualified. I'm not really qualified to kind of speak at length on on that controversy. I don't think that's something that we've been exposed to, um, and nothing that's come up as a you know discussion of the distraction within our business. Um, as I said, we believe everyone, ha- you know, should have the power to just be them, their true selves at work. So that, that's that's our policy. And yeah, we're having success with it so far. Uh, is uh, personal mentoring necessary for women working in gaming? I think personal mentoring is necessary for anyone, um, not not just women, de- definitely not. I think personal mentoring is fantastic. And I've, I've myself gained so much from mentoring throughout um, my career from a very junior lawyer and now, even now I have a mentor as well outside of the company so yeah I think personal mentoring is fantastic we have a full mentoring program um, at Live School Group it's not compulsory it's of course voluntary where junior junior or newer employees or employees on a different um, career or, or career path um, are paired with a more senior person who can give them different insight from across the business um, and then we also within our women's group. Um, We also network together to offer um, mentoring opportunities outside of that group as well. So, you know, with our networks beyond the company. So, yeah, I mean, I've had a great, great success of mentoring. I think it's always fantastic to learn from different perspectives, um, irrespective of gender, irrespective of, yeah, irrespective of anything. I think it's it's always lovely to kind of get a different perspective and, and, and discuss your career with someone who's got a, you know, a different take on it. Do you have any advice for colleagues in iGaming firms that want to establish a group like this? Uh, I think it's really important to have a super supportive full team and certainly our board and CEO has been bought into this from the beginning as well. So I do think you need to have um, the support of the executive and, and the support of your HR. But otherwise, it's been relatively easy, to be honest with you. I think um, getting a group of women together um, and sort of organizing um, and cascading meetings and plans has actually been relatively straightforward and we've just got such a fantastic group where everyone's an active participant lots of people have ideas lots of people put their hand up to you know take forward this or that from our agenda so yeah we've actually found it i've actually found it relatively simple to organize and i hope that other companies would be as you know embracing of, of this kind of idea so, so you would expect this would take off in the iGaming sector? 
I'm not sure. I'm not sure about takeoff. I think employee resource groups have been around for a while, from what I understand. So I know that we're not totally unique in this regard. But yeah, I I I hope. I mean, I'm, I've spoken about it a few times now. I've spoken out about it in industry press and at some of our industry conferences. And a lot of people have come up to me and asked me how they would potentially establish it within their organizations. And we've t talked through ideas. So it doesn't have to be a carbon copy, of course. You know, every organization is unique. It has its own unique culture and values. But certainly, I think if people do want to kick something off like this, it's actually not that difficult once you once you sort of get going uh, providing they have the support of senior management and i think so yeah exactly i think that is important and critical because you wouldn't want to do anything that sort of goes against you know senior management's ideas but yeah i i can't imagine that it's overly controversial well rani it's been a delight talking to you and thank you very much for your time Thank you. Thank you, Leon. Thanks for having me. And now let's talk to economist Saul Eslake. Well, Saul, the Productivity Commission last week said Australian productivity fell by 2%, which is not good. Uh, what's your view about this? Well, it isn't good. In the long run, as Paul Krugman famously said some 30 years ago, productivity isn't everything, but in the long run, it's almost everything. And there's an enormous body of research, which I think convincingly demonstrates that over long periods of time, productivity growth is the only sustainable basis for improvements in people's material standards of living. One of the main reasons why growth in net national disposable income per head in real terms in Australia during the, tw during the past decade has been the slowest since the 1930s has been because of the slowing in our rate of productivity growth. Now, that's not unique to Australia. Most advanced economies have experienced some slowing in productivity growth as well. And indeed, some of them have experienced a sharper slowdown in productivity growth than we have the United Kingdom being a very specific example. But from a long run point of view, the slowdown in productivity growth is of considerable concern. In the short run, it's also a concern because of the way it interacts with wages growth to raise concerns about the persistence of inflation. Wages haven't been a significant source of the rise in inflation in Australia over the last year. But given that wages are now beginning belatedly to pick up, the Reserve Bank has said that uh, if product, unless there's a turnaround in productivity growth, wages could become a factor in prolonging Australia's experience of unacceptably high inflation. So there's a short-term dimension to the slowdown in productivity growth that's of concern, as well as the longer-run concern about what it means for improvements in Australia's material living standards. What's actually caused this? Well, that's a matter of some dispute in the very short term, as the Productivity Commission demonstrated in the report it released a few days ago. Uh, the fall in productivity growth over the past couple of quarters is a byproduct of things that are happening in the mining sector, where Hours worked have gone up, but output appears to have gone down. The mining industry matters much more in Australia than it does in most other economies because it represents about 10% of GDP compared with about 2% for most other advanced economies. And of course, the mining sector is a very high labor productivity industry because it's so capital intensive. So what happens to mining industry productivity can have an outsized influence on aggregate productivity 
figures, but I would expect that that would probably reverse itself. Looking over a slightly longer period, say since the end of the pandemic and the reopening of the Australian economy, what we've seen is the return of many industries that were severely impacted by the restrictions imposed during the pandemic that are inherently low productivity, such as tourism and retail. So those industries, when they were closed down in a perverse sort of way, uh, boosted productivity. And now that they're coming back on stream, their impact on aggregate productivity figures is to dampen the rate of growth of productivity. Again, that's a relatively short-term factor. Looking over a longer period, as I said before, Australia's experience of slower productivity growth isn't unique. It's common across most advanced economies, and it therefore makes sense to look for some global explanations for what might be happening. And I think one of the more convincing ones is that there's been a slowdown in the diffusion of new technologies from what the literature calls frontier firms, that is the firms which invent new technologies, and so-called laggard firms that traditionally adapt technologies that have been developed by the so-called frontier firms. Uh, that diffusion of new technologies does appear to have slowed over the past decade. And some analysts put that down to the exercise of the greater market power that technologically advanced firms like the big tech firms, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Netflix, and so forth have in either doing things that make life difficult for potential competitors or taking them over, as, uh, for example, happened with Instagram and WhatsApp that were absorbed by much larger firms. So that there's some evidence to support that view in the United States and globally. There's also been as some uh, writers observe, and it was mentioned in the recent white paper on full employment issued by the Australian government, that there appears to have been a reduction in the so-called dynamism of the Australian economy. And there are a couple of dimensions of that. First, people are changing jobs less often. And that's also probably a cause of weak wage growth in the years leading up to the pandemic. The rate of new business creation has slowed. The rate of exit of firms has slowed as well. And Japanese experience with an extended period of very low interest rates suggests that in a low interest rate environment, so-called zombie firms, that is firms with very low levels of productivity, are able to stay in business longer because they're less likely to encounter financial difficulties. That probably exerts a drag on productivity as well, and there's certainly evidence to support that in Australia. Uh, perhaps a little more controversially, I argue that policies that preference small business simply because it's small and for no other reason, and we've had quite a lot of those in Australia at both the federal and state levels over the past decade, they probably have an adverse impact on productivity as well, because there's evidence to show that productivity is lower in small businesses than in medium-sized and big ones, that small businesses are less likely to innovate in multiple dimensions than medium-sized or large ones. And so to the extent that payroll tax and company tax preferences for small business do actually help prolong the lives of small businesses, that probably has an adverse impact on productivity as well. In other words, what I'm saying here is that there are multiple causes of the slowdown in productivity growth, and the solutions to those problems are not the solutions that Australia adopted in the 1980s. Spring is my favourite time to start a new workout routine. 
With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. ...in 1990s to address the slowdown in productivity growth we'd experienced prior to then. You can't repeat the privatizations and deregulations and reductions in tariffs that we did during that period that certainly helped boost productivity. Um, The distribution of the benefits of those productivity enhancing reforms has also been contentious and probably eroded public support that governments need if they're to embark on productivity enhancing reforms. So Australia won't be alone in finding it difficult to reverse the slide in productivity growth that's occurred over the past 10 to 15 years. Uh, But if we don't, then we'll have to become accustomed to much slower growth in much slower improvements in our living standards than we've come to expect. I'm wondering whether the uptake of technology could actually address this productivity issue. In theory, it should. I mean, the history of technological changes suggests that that's at the heart of long-run improvements in productivity growth. But the history also suggests that what the literature calls general purpose technologies, that is technological advances that have a wide variety of potential applications, can take a surprisingly long time to impact on productivity figures. A good example is electricity which was invented in the early 1870s in the United States, but didn't really start to have a major discernible impact on productivity growth and living standards until starting in the 1920s. It took a long time for businesses and entrepreneurs to figure out how to apply electricity in ways that would transform and improve productivity. The internal combustion engine is another example that was invented, I think, in the latter part of the 19th century. But motor vehicles didn't really become widely available in the United States until the 1920s or beyond. And it really wasn't until the 1940s and 50s that they became widely available in Australia. So it it takes time in many cases, to establish the widespread networks that are required for new new general purpose technologies to be widely applied. It takes time for people and firms to discover how to use them in the most effective ways. And I think that will probably turn out to be true of some of the advances in technology that we're seeing now, especially artificial intelligence. Well, I I was going to say artificial intelligence would be one example, but I would add to that that the internet was developed many decades ago but it's only really only took off in the last decade or so yeah that's that's absolutely right i mean the origins of the internet go back to i think the late 1960s and early 1970s work that was done in places like arpad in the united states and in switzerland Uh, we didn't get email for example which is a pretty simple application of the uh, internet Uh, we didn't get email in the way that we understand it today until the mid 1990s and the same is also true of uh, uh, web browsers, I think, were developed about 1994, 95, and we are still learning 
how to use those in ways that uh, boost productivity and some might say in ways that detract from productivity as well and have other potentially damaging consequences. Well, uh, you could say the same about AI. That uh, that has massive implications for productivity, but that could take decades for companies. Yeah, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if that turned out to be the case. I mean, it's, it's ironic. Uh, another famous quote about productivity that came, I think, from Robert Solo, who did a lot of work on this uh, over the course of his career. I think in the early 1990s or late 1980s, he famously said, you can see productivity improvements everywhere except in the productivity statistics. And it wasn't long after he said that, that you actually did begin to see improvements in productivity in the productivity statistics in the mid to late 1990s and early 2000s before that boom faded. The same thing may well be true of artificial intelligence and gene technology and nanotechnology and some of the other things that are happening at the very frontier of technological advances around the world today. We could be, we could see decades before that that would affect productivity. That, that's right. And it will depend uh, how quickly you see it, especially here in Australia, where we tend to be adapters of new technologies rather than in general inventors of them. It will depend on the strength of our institutions, the uh, incentives that firms have to innovate, the extent to which the authorities foster rather than hamper competition, and the extent to which societies, the whole and governments are, are willing to allow factors of production, labour and capital that are currently used in relatively unproductive pursuits to move to areas where they can be deployed more productively, something that's often difficult for the individuals and firms concerned, but a very necessary part of the way that productivity growth is achieved at the aggregate level. So basically what you're saying is it could take many, many years till we see an improvement in Australian productivity. Would that be the case? It certainly will be if governments aren't willing to embrace some of the suggestions that have been put forward by the Productivity Commission earlier this year in its second five-yearly review of productivity. And it's worth noting that although the Productivity Commission does have a, a certain reputation for being a proponent of market-based economic reforms, if you look closely at the 71 recommendations that were contained in that report, uh, they're not the 1980s and 1990s offerings of more industrial relations reform or more deregulation. A lot of them stem to, stem to improvements in our education systems, giving consumers of education and health services more choice in uh, the, the way that they consume or use the services offered by parts of the economy that are largely controlled by government, smarter and better use of data, things like that, I think, uh, are more likely to hold the keys to improving our productivity growth. And of course, these are choices that we can make in Australia rather than have them dictated to us by things that are happening on the other side of the world. Well, Saul, it's been terrific talking to you and thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure, Leo. So what's happening in the news? Well, an Australian regulator has fined Elon Musk's social media platform, X, $610,500 for failing to cooperate with a probe into anti-child abuse practices, a blow to a company that has struggled to keep advertisers amid complaints that is going soft on moderating content. The eSafety Commission fined X, the, the platform Musk, rebranded from Twitter, saying it failed to respond to questions including how long it took to respond to reports of child abuse material on the platform and the methods it used to detect it. Though small compared to the US 
$44 billion must pay for the website in October 2022, the fine is a reputational hit for a company that is seeing a continuous revenue decline as advertisers cut spending on a platform that has stopped most content moderation and reinstated thousands of banned accounts. Most recently, the EU said it was investigating X for potential violation of its new tech rules after the platform was accused of failing to rein in disinformation in relation to Hamas's attack on Israel. And a spectre of a wider conflict in the Middle East poses a fresh threat to the global economy. Just as the world emerges from shocks triggered by COVID-19 and the Ukraine war, finance ministers and officials have warned. Broader regional tensions would have significant economic ramifications, they said, as they rounded off meetings of the IMF and World Bank in Morocco last week. The biannual events took place as Israel declared war on Hamas and launched a major bombardment of the Gaza Strip. If we are facing any escalation or extension of the conflict to the whole region, we will face big consequences, Bruno Le Maire, France's finance minister, told the Financial Times, adding that risks range from higher energy prices stirring inflation to a decline in confidence. Kristalina Georgieva, the head of the IMF, warned of a new cloud on not the sunniest horizon for the global economy, encapsulating fears among the delegates in Marrakesh that the medium-term prospects for the global economy are lukewarm. But as delegates convened, the mood darkened as the wider implications of the Israel-Hamas war mixed with underlying anxiety about persistent vulnerabilities in the global economy. The IMF's analysis pointed to worsening longer-term growth trends as economies struggle to lift productivity, barriers to free trade amount amid worsening in political tensions and public debt rises around the world. Notable in the IMF's short-term forecast, prepared before the violence in the Middle East broke out, was a lack of obvious bright spots beyond a handful of countries such as the US or India. Key economic danger following the events of October 7, officials argued, was an escalation of fighting in Israel and Gaza into a wider regional conflict. This would not only hit confidence but add a flesh inflationary outburst to two economies that are only beginning to recover from a series of price shocks. The IMF believes a 10% rise in oil prices would raise global inflation by about 0.4 percentage points. Gita Gopinath, deputy head of the IMF, said the world was facing a large number of shocks, including the Middle East conflict, and its potential implications for energy prices. Michelle Bullock's first Reserve Bank board meeting as governor warned that world oil prices now being pushed higher by deepening conflict in the Middle East could prompt it to lift interest rates again to tame inflation. The board has a low tolerance for a slower return of inflation to target than currently expected, revealed the minutes of the October 3rd board meeting released on Tuesday. The minutes add extra weight to the release of the September quarter consumer price index, the CPI, on October the 25th. Many economists expect the figures will provide the trigger for the RBA board to raise the cash rate to 4.35% from 4.1% at its next meeting on, on November. The RBA minutes called out both persistent services price inflation and the sharp rise in oil prices since June as a significant concern given how long inflation is likely to be above target. It was noted that the rise in petrol prices would continue to underpin inflation over coming months and could influence household inflation expectations, the minutes said. The RBA does not expect inflation to return to its 2% to 3% target band until December 2025. And the federal government will require crypto exchanges to hold a financial services licence issued by the corporate regulator under a new regime bolstered with, with specific obligations to reduce risk for investors while supporting the growth of the digital asset sector. Assistant Treasurer Stephen Jones announced the 
the government's long-anticipated regulatory regime at the Australian Financial Review Crypto Summit on Monday morning, where he said that regulation will protect users by reducing the risk of scams and of exchanges collapsing. The government has decided to regulate at the level, at the level of the crypto exchanges rather than specific tokens, and will do so under existing financial services laws rather than creating a bespoke regime. Exchanges holding more than $5 million in aggregate, or more than $1,500 for any individual, will have to obtain an Australian Financial Services Licence, AFSL, which are granted by the Australian Securities Investments Commission. This will require the exchanges to provide services honestly and fairly, manage conflicts of interest, make disclosures, submit financial accounts and meet solvency and cash reserve requirements. Rules around asset custody will also be included. The guidelines for exchanges, which hold billions of dollars in crypto, held by one in four Australians, according to Treasury, will lift consumer protections in a sector that is internationally being plagued by hacks and poor risk management. This was exemplified by the collapse of a US crypto exchange, FTX, which triggered losses for around 30,000 Australians. And cryptocurrency advocates are tipping the price for Bitcoin to reach US $100,000 within the next five years if approval of the first exchange-traded funds for digital assets open the floodgates to institutional investors. Lisa Waite, the chief executive of DigitalX, which runs two digital asset funds for wholesale investors, said really grounded analysis by her team suggested that Bitcoin would easily reach the equivalent of six figures in US dollars in the near future. I think a lot of people in the industry have PTSD of last year, but it's undeniable over the long-term horizon that Bitcoin will be a really great investment class, she said. If just 1% of all global wealth was to put into Bitcoin, that gets us to US $100,000 within five years, she said. Not to be outdone. Richard Galvin, chief executive and co-founder of Digital Asset Capital Management, said he could see Bitcoin reaching 101,000 US dollars in the same time period. Mr. Galvin added that DACM had been fielding interest from institutional and sophisticated investors, including family offices, looking for exposure to alternative assets. And by the time the Yes campaign kicked off its final multi-million dollar advertising blitz, it was too late. Opponents of a voice to Parliament had been running consistent targeted messages in key states for more than eight months. Political strategy and advertising experts say that although it appeared Yes groups far out spent the No camp, the No side's clear message and repetition was key to its resounding win in Saturday's referendum. The Yes campaign had the backing of Corporate Australia, the likes of BHP, Rio Tinto, West Farmers, ANZ Quant and Visi Industries Executive Chairman Anthony Pratt publicly disclosed more than $26 billion in combined donations. On the other side, billionaire Clive Palmer said he would spend $2 million promoting the no vote and ran a series of large newspaper ads in the final weeks. Adam Giles, the boss of Gina Reinhardt's Hancock Agriculture, made it clear he felt companies should stay out of the debate. Ms Reinhardt did, however, attend the no campaign event on Saturday night. Conservative lobby group Advance created Fair Australia in February and immediately spent, started spending thousands of dollars for the no vote on social media. Its ads, which mostly showed Jacinta Namjimpa Price, Maura Mundine and Tony Abbott, said, said a voice would cause division. Over the months since, its message did not change. The no strategy was doubt, divide and conquer. It's proven it works, Howard Parry Husbands, chief executive of tr- strategic insights firm Pollinate, said. When you create uncertainty and fear, you're creating loss aversion. Almost every Australian struggling to pay the bills. It's uncertain. These two things conflate. Support for the voice fell as interest rates rise and and voters stuck with the status quo, Mr Parry Husband said. But he added that the Yes campaign, which made powerful and emotive ads, appeared to lack a clear strategy. And Stockland said it expected to sell homes for up to 10% more this year than in the year to June. Growth strongest in the land lease community's business targeting downsizes. 
Even as it warned that market conditions remained uncertain, the ASX-listed developer, landlord, investor said housing prices in its core master plan community's business would average 5-10% more this financial year than in the previous. Prices of homes in its smaller but fast-growing landlord's community's business were rising faster, with 420 contracts on hand at the end of September, up 9% on average from the average 2023 settlement price, the company said. The update by the country's largest diversified residential developer gives a good insight into the unfolding market as consumers grapple with high borrowing costs and an increasingly uncertain economic outlook. Stockland's net 991 residential sales in the September quarter were up from the June quarter's 917, the latest in a housing ebb and flow that would change little until the outlook for interest rates change, it said. The company kept its settlement target 5,200 to 5,600 homes for the year, but said the skew in settlement volumes and funds from operations towards the second half would be greater than it anticipated in August. A near doubling of sales from land lease communities' homes to 111 from 63 in the same quarter a year earlier showed the strength of demand for the homes that downsizers buy and own on land for which they pay rent and justified the company's continued expansion into the growing sector. Stockland said it would triple its number of land lease or manufactured housing estates this year from the five operational facilities had at the end of June. It opened two more in the September quarter and would open a further ten over the current year, it said. This chemicals giant Albemarle has abandoned its proposed takeover of Liontown Resources in the face of a series of raids on the miners' share register by Australia's richest person, Gina Reinhardt. The mining magnate has spent nearly $1 billion building a blocking stake in the lithium mine over the past month, with a company, Hancock Prospecting, picking up a strategic 19.9% holding in Liontown. Reinhardt's raids came even as Albemarle was sifting through Liontown's books ahead of its $6.6 million takeover. Albemarle had asked last Thursday for a week-long extension to its four-week due diligence period, but on Monday it notified Liontown that the deal was off. Albemarle has now advised that it has withdrawn its indicative proposal and it will not be proceeding with its proposed acquisition of Liontown, the fledgling miner said in a statement on Monday. Its decision to withdraw its proposal was due to the growing complexity associated with executing the transaction, it added. Hancock's rapidly expanding presence on the company's register put a significant obstacle in the path of North Carolina-based Albemarle which had sweetened its $3 a share proposal for, for Liontown in September after two previous non-binding proposals, one in March this year at $2.35 a share and the other in October last year at $2.20 a share, didn't gain transaction. Albemarle held a 4.3% in the WA miner through its subsidiary RT Lithium. Before Hancock's raids, Liontown's register was dominated by its chairman, Tim Goida, who owns a 15% stake in the miner. Another 20% was reportedly in the hands of our investors closely aligned to Goida. Lithium has shot to prominence over the past decade as a key component in modern home and grid batteries used to store the renewable energy generated from wind and solar or to power electric cars. Its critical status has resulted in vehicle manufacturers and lithium producers scrambling to skew supply chains amid the growing competition for raw materials from the booming EV sector. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Sonia Schwabski, the CEO of Quick Copy, focusing on the franchise company's growth strategy. And I'll be talking to RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson about the impact of technology, big data and blockchain on the economy. For the most exclusive access to learning economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from our website, leongetler.com. If you like Talking Business, please leave us a review with Apple Podcasts. Thank you in advance. In the meantime, catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to learning economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. If you want to contact me, email me at leon at leongetler.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 